please take out your Bibles once again and turn with me to Psalm 98. We're in week number two of our look at the hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. As we turn to God's Word, let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for, our, for your word, which is a, indeed a lamp to a, our feet and a light to our path. And yet, Father, your word is not magical. Mysterious, yes. But we are desperately in need of your spirit, Father, to illuminate our minds and hearts to understand and receive your word. Father, would you be pleased to open our hearts and minds to your word and open your word to our hearts and minds today that we would know increasingly what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people as we humbly rely upon Christ to live a life pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, there's the uh, insert that includes uh, Psalm 98 and on the other side the um, original hymn that was really two hymns that Watts um, developed out of Psalm 98. Christmas music is of course now in the church this time of year. It's the largest section of the Trinity hymnal. If you've ever wondered, but the, the Trinity hymnal interestingly is organized Uh, along the lines of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I bet you all didn't know that. I I like hymns modern and ancient because it's alphabetical. I mean, it's it's easy to find. It's sometimes hard to find hymns in the Trinity hymnal. But from hymn 193 all the way to 233, the largest section is is, uh, Advent and the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, not only is Christmas music, um, Advent music, music of the Incarnation present within the church, but... As you know, it's present throughout the world right now. It's everywhere, radio, stores, and restaurants. And as I was at Staples yesterday afternoon picking up the bulletin, it was, it was great to hear right above my head, uh, O Come, All Ye Faithful, from one of my favorite singer-songwriters from Kentucky. It was great. And uh, in an increasingly post-Christian society and culture around us, Christmas music serves as a point of contact. Have you ever thought about that? That there there could be contact between the unbelieving world and the believing world through something like Christmas music? Again, as we said last week, uh, a lot of times people say things they don't know what they're saying. People are singing things and they're listening to things they don't know what they're singing and they don't know what they're listening to. What a great bridge before us to drive across the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Believer and unbeliever probably recognizes that joy to the world is one of the most recognized, if not the most recognized, popular Christmas hymn. People, of course, are looking for, longing for joy. Joy, here at the end of 2017, in a nation that seems to be continued to be driven by identity politics and divisions, always the the threat of terrorism around us, a 
low-grade cynicism that at times becomes acute. I was talking to someone recently, and uh, he travels around the country for business and has to meet with um, various uh, representatives of companies, and he takes them out to dinner and breakfast, and he meets with them, and he says that almost everyone he meets, even though they're presenting a good um, front and a good picture, they're just one step away from a complete unraveling of their life. He's sensed a hopelessness that people have, even though the smile is on, the bank account is flush, there's a hopelessness. Well, as Christians, we have the message of hope, we have the message of joy, and no hymn captures that better than joy to the world. Here we are in the middle of a four-week series to unpack and expose the biblical truth found in the hymn. What we're doing is not what we typically do. This is a topical exposition using the words of the hymn as a launching point into the scriptures. The hymn's central theme is there is great joy. Great joy in the Lord's coming, in His rule, in His blessing, and in His favor. As you know, Isaac Watts uh, wrote this hymn. The music that we sing it to was uh, influenced by uh, Handel, the composer, and most likely put together by Lowell Mason. Isaac Watts is known as the father of English hymnody. He's upwards of uh, written 750 hymns. Of course, not all those hymns uh, remain in hymn books, but... uh, Scholars have have done the research and found that he wrote around 750 hymns. You heard last week that the story goes that he complained to his father about lyrics, especially singing the psalms. He said that the poetry was terrible, that the exclusive psalmody, uh, while in many ways good, it, it had one significant problem. It ignored the fact that Christ had come. And his father said, well, Isaac, if you, can, if you think you can do better, well, why don't you write your own verse for worship? And guess what? He did. And in 1719, his collection of several hymns was put together called the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. He is not paraphrasing the Psalms, but rather imitating the Psalms. He's looking at the Psalms through the lens of the New Testament. Earlier this week, I was uh, reading a book that I had purchased but not read. There's always a danger in that, called The Poetic Wonder of Isaac Watts. And in chapter 8, Watts as Psalm Interpreter, I I read these words and I found them to be encouraging and helpful, and I want to read them uh, to us. The biographer says this It is important to recall that Watts wrote this hymn his hymns, and interpreted the psalms in poetry alongside his duties as a preacher of the gospel. He knew that it was unconscionable of him as a preacher to neglect to show his flock Christ, who appears as the fulfillment of the law in all the scriptures, and hence in the psalms. For Watts, redemptive historical poetic interpretation of the psalms was the only hermeneutic, just as it was when he was preaching. Watts was not actually being hermeneutically innovative here, as some suggest. All of his learning had been in the Reformed and Calvinist tradition, so he was merely attempting to urge a continuity 
between Christ-centered Reformed preaching and Reformed singing in worship. Calvin himself had written, quote, We ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Whoever shall turn aside from this object, though he may weary himself throughout his whole life in learning, will never attain the knowledge of the truth. Watts interpreted Psalm 98 through the lens of Christ. And as you see in your handout, his first three verses were called praise for the gospel. And his last four that we know as joy to the world were called the Messiah's coming and kingdom. Join with me as I read Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Well, I'd like to state a proposition coming from the hymn, in particular verse 2. And that proposition is this. There is joy in being ruled. Again, there is joy in being ruled. Now, are you kidding? Some of us may say there is no delight in being ruled. Just look at our government. Look at my boss who I have to see every Monday. Are you kidding? Joy in being ruled? Well, people sadly but understandably transfer their views of government, of, of the boss, to God. And with that being the case, there would be no joy but only terror and fear because God like my boss, and God, like the government, is in absolute control and not very nice. How about you? When you think of being ruled, what's your attitude? Well, that was a proposition coming from the hymn, but I want to look now at this claim from the hymn, and in verse 2, we see this. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Why is there joy to the earth? He gives a reason. The Savior reigns. Joy can be and joy should be the right attitude of our being ruled when we recognize who it is who is ruling us. Already in verse 1 of our hymn, Watts has used the words, the Lord. 
the king. Here, he uses the word savior. His choice of words was not accidental, but deliberate. Watts is making a statement by this juxtaposition, this laying side by side of savior and reigns. Joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Does that surprise you? The Savior reigns. Would you have put those two words together? The Savior saves, of course. The King reigns. But the Savior reigns? Now in order to be able to sing joy to the world with integrity and with an undivided heart, actually meaning what you are singing. We're going to consider this claim that the Savior reigns by looking at three aspects of the Savior's reign through a New Testament lens. Its expectation, its achievement, and finally its demonstration. The Savior's reign expected. It's the far horizon that the Old Testament presents. There's expectations for the Messiah, the Hebrew uh, anointed one. Uh, in Greek, it would be Christ. Here we have the great expectation, the promises made. And the entire Old Testament witness from Genesis 3.15 on, everything in the scriptures, as it were, leans forward to the coming prophet, priest, and king who has been promised. As we studied and worked our way through Mark's gospel, you will see how as Jesus interacted with people, as he called his disciples, as he interacted with the religious leaders, there was that interaction with the promises of the Old Testament. And some recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises. Others did not. The Psalms have in particular at times themes of salvation and the rule and reign of God, in particular the 90s. We often use uh, psalms from the 90s as a call to worship because they, they speak of God ruling and reigning and bringing salvation. Look with me back in the Psalter to Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. Over to Psalm 95, He is the rock of our salvation. In Psalm 96, we are called to tell of His salvation. As we listen to Psalm 97, our Old Testament reading, it started off, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Did you see it? The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And in Psalm 98, in those first three verses, we see salvation, salvation, salvation. Well, the near horizon of the New Testament, we can see clearly in Luke 1 and 2, our New Testament reading, where salvation and rule were combined. In, in, in Luke 1, the, the angel announces to Mary who this baby would be, just as he announced to Joseph uh, the name Jesus in, in Matthew 1.21, that Jesus would save and yet, in verses 32 and 33, we read of his rule, his reign, his throne. And then in chapter 2, the angel announces to shepherds that it, being born in the city of David is who? A savior 
who is Christ the Lord, a, a Savior who is the promised Messiah, who, by the way, is Lord, Savior, Lord together. Now, especially I learned this in the Navy, much to my uh, regret, I was slow to learn this, but you don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect. My boss used to tell me that a lot as I expected my division to do better than they did. He would often remind me, Ensign, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. Well, with that in mind, let's take a closer look at the Savior's reign and let's inspect, first of all, how it was achieved. I remember in seminary, um, we had to take a number of... um, Uh, courses in the original languages and then uh, systematic theology and biblical theology. But a number of professors, especially in the Old Testament, they they speak of the New Testament as being a surprise ending to the the, um, Old Testament. In other words, as you know, um, the, the book of Malachi ends the Old Testament and there's that period of 400 years of silence that wasn't really silent. We just don't have any record of what was really going on, but, but who would have guessed, who would have imagined that salvation and the Messiah would come this way? So here we see the Savior's reign achieved. How did Jesus save? Now, if you had to come up with a plan, how would you design it? A plan of salvation. Would it become, would it be God becoming man? Would it be the incarnation, the eternal second person of the Trinity becoming man? Would you have come up with that? I mean, the invisible becomes visible. I hope you've uh, read already and will continue to read that quote from J.I. Packer that says the real stumbling block of Christianity is the incarnation. If God can come to earth in the flesh, then everything else just falls into place. That's why this is a great time of year to talk with people. If the incarnation, by God's grace, starts, as it were, making sense, all the dominoes can start to fall into place. So would it it be God becoming man? Would that have been your plan? Well, maybe if it was, how about a Superman, right? I mean, what kind of genre do we have now out there in comics and movies, but superheroes and um, strong men, right? But yet, look at Jesus' humble birth, which foreshadows his humiliating death. I've always appreciated the uh, children's catechism, 54, what is meant by the atonement? Great question. I mean, do you think our kids can start learning things like that? Absolutely. What is meant by the atonement? Christ satisfied God's justice by his suffering and death as a substitute for sinners. What a great definition on the meaning of the atonement. The Savior's reign. How was it achieved? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Well, how did Jesus save? He saved through his perfect life of obedience and he saved through his atoning death in our place. We remember from our study in Mark that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, we, know, we read this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In Philippians chapter 2, we read, beginning in verse 6, Paul is describing Jesus, and he said, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus saves us by not saving himself. And this helps us see the great reversal of the gospel. I remember in, um, in uh, high school, I uh, had some friends on the wrestling team, and I, I would go occasionally to wrestling matches, and I was always fascinated by how at the end you determined who won a wrestling match. I mean, if a guy was pinned, it was pretty obvious, but how at the end did somebody win without a pin? Well, there were points awarded for various moves. And one of my favorite was the reversal. It's where a guy is on the bottom about to be pinned and he does some move and the next thing you know, he's on top. And if he doesn't get the pin, he gets the points. And he might win the match. Well, Jesus refusing to save himself from the cross, but instead staying there to save us, this shows us and helps us see the great reversal of the gospel. Jesus saves us by himself becoming weak and our study of the suffering servant this time last year from Isaiah helps us see that. Becoming weak and giving up his life. In our shorter catechism, question 26 says, how does Jesus, ex how does Christ execute the office of a king? You know, prophet, priest, and king. Question 26 has to do with Christ's office as king. You know what the very next question is? It's about Christ's humiliation. Isn't that interesting? They've got to have an order to explain and expose the teaching of Scripture, but right beside the king is his humiliation. And then, of course, his exaltation. Because at the center of the gospel... This great reversal of the gospel is a cross, a means of death for Jesus. But for those who believe, it's a means of life. Okay, back to the statement, the Savior reigns. You know, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Well, the skeptic says, yeah, right. The Savior reigns. You know, just like Jesus lives in your heart, right? Well, that's an understandable objection. And so a good question to ask and answer is this. How is the Savior's reign made known? How does the invisible rule of Christ become visible? So let's look now at the Savior's reign demonstrated. How is Jesus' reign made known, displayed? Well, how does the Savior rule? Well, we get some help from verse 4 that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. He rules the world. With truth and grace. He rules the world through truth and grace. 
How is the reign of Jesus made known in the life of the individual Christian? Because you see, he rules the world through grace and truth in the life of the individual Christian. How is it made known? Well, we see it in a life of gratitude. In response to being saved. How is the rule of Jesus made known in someone's life? They are grateful. They are thankful. We, we saw that in our message before Thanksgiving. And we thought about the Heidelberg Catechism's categories of the guilt of sin, the grace of Christ, and a life of gratitude that, that flows from that. So we see, first of all, the reign of Jesus in a life of gratitude. But we also see it in a life of humility. Both James and Peter repeat each other. And they're back to back in the scriptures. Both James and Peter say very clearly, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And from that reality, there is the command, of course, to humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So it's a life of gratitude, it's a life of humility, and it's a life of love. In Ephesians 5, we hear the call to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Well, that's how the reign of Christ is made known. The Savior's reign is made known in the life of an individual Christian. Well, how about a church? How about a church? How about a community of people who have declared spiritual bankruptcy and thus they have gained entrance into the church? I hope you read the uh, preparing for worship email. I, I just love the quote by John Newton. Uh, some days, do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with information? Do you guys ever feel like there's just way too much stuff to know and, 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 and master, whether it's in your job or around the home? Well, I like to go back to Newton, who, who said, you know, basically that uh, when I was young, I was certain and sure of many things. But now that I'm old, uh, I basically uh, remember two things. And he says, uh, I'm a miserable sinner, and Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. And he says this, he is well taught who gets these two lessons. I'm like, two lessons, not a hundred, two. But with those two lessons, of course, Newton is capturing wealth upon wealth of scriptural teaching. Our sin and the Savior's kindness and mercy and grace. How else do we see a church making the Savior's reign known? By living the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. And I want us to all go to two New Testament passages. First, Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 44. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 44. This may sound familiar. We were there probably six months ago. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know 
that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then picking up on that, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 understands that same command of Jesus to his disciples and he fleshes it out with these words beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and... If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Isaac Watts, I believe, is picking up on Peter's last words. You remember Peter? Boastful, arrogant, I will never do this, Peter. Collapses when questioned by a probable 12-year-old girl that he didn't even know Jesus. But in view of the mercy and kindness and grace of God, Peter is restored. Indeed, Jesus' earlier words were confirmed. When you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers and my friends. We are the beneficiaries of Paul through his writings, strengthening us. Well, the last words in Peter that grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's really interesting. Those words roll off our lips, but it's pretty unusual in the New Testament. It really shows up only with Peter. 2 Peter 3.18 and earlier in three times or two other times in, in, in Peter, Lord and Savior are brought together. The Savior's reign is brought together. We've looked at the expectation, the achievement, and the demonstration or the display. Well, we need to wrap up. And I want us to recognize that there are only two types of rulers, bosses, government officials. The first type is the one who from his office tells you what to do. And sadly, often that kind makes your work and life miserable. Because they sit in their office and they tell you what to do. And you go do it. But there's another type of ruler who, because of his position, does indeed tell you what to do. 
But nevertheless, he leaves his office, so to speak, enters your world and works alongside you. In fact, he does what you're supposed to do perfectly. And get this, he takes the blame for what you failed to do. That is amazingly astonishing. And that was one of the things that inspired another English hymn writer, Charles Wesley, to say this, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How could the one who rules me save me? Watts looks at Psalm 98 and he says, Praise for the gospel, followed by the joy of the Messiah's coming and kingdom. That order is significant because a declaration of the gospel is followed by a response of joy. My friends, there is great joy in a salvation that we did not achieve, but we only receive as a gift. And in response to what we have received from God, what God has done for us, may our gratitude, may our humility, may our love and joy declare and demonstrate to those around us, both here in this church and in our community, that we don't rule our lives. Rather, our lives demonstrate that we are ruled by another the one who a few weeks ago in our study of Galatians chapter 20, or chapter 2, verse 20, Paul could say, who loved me and gave himself for me. May God give us grace to sing with joy because the Savior reigns in us and through us. Indeed, let us employ this song and repeat the sounding joy over and over and over again. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, when we consider the great news that the Savior reigns, words often escape us but Lord, may you be pleased to give us more opportunities to declare the saving rule of Jesus to ourselves and to others. And may you give us growing opportunities to demonstrate and, and, and display that we are ruled by King Jesus. Who indeed loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we acknowledge that there is great joy in the coming of Jesus. Let us receive our King. And Father, there is great joy in His rule, knowing that the Savior reigns. For we pray in His name. Amen.